0: I want you to imagine with me that Jer got arrested. That wouldn't surprise me. Let's say that he came on a short-term trip to Tanzania again. We lured him back out there, and we took him to the island of Zanzibar. I don't think he got to go there last time. They they chose safari. Um, And the island of Zanzibar is 99.9% Muslim. And let's say we wanted to take him to some of the Christian churches that were there, very few as they might, and introduce him to some missionaries. And he was mistakenly thought to be a missionary who was proselytizing amongst the Muslims, and he was arrested wrongly. Because they said, all Wazungu look alike. All white people, they look the same. So Jerry was arrested. He's thrown in prison. I send news back to the church here. Your pastor's been arrested. You're thinking, what did he do this time? Right? Okay? I explained that he actually hadn't done anything wrong. He was just going to meet some missionaries, but they mistook him for somebody else. And weeks start to go by, and they haven't released Jer. And he's sitting there in prison. He's not able to communicate. We don't know what's going on. And finally, obviously, the U.S. government gets involved, and they're putting pressure on Tanzania to release Jer. And... They finally agree that they can have a representative come in to see that Jerry's doing okay. That there's not going to be anybody there monitoring the conversation. They want to make sure that he's being treated well. And they're saying, well, we have some court proceedings and all these things going on before we can release him to make sure that it was a misunderstanding. And so somebody comes in, maybe you send somebody from the church out, and you get this 30-minute conversation with Jeremy. And he wants to send word back to his family, to his church, to his friends. What do you think he would communicate during that 30-minute conversation? What would be the priority? What would be his heart? What would be the things that he would vent about this experience that he has had, this misunderstanding? What if that was you? I know if it was me, I would be, as an American... Yes, I've lived overseas for a long time, but I think my Americanness would come out. My rights are being violated. I I want justice. I want heads to roll, right? I want the government to come in here, and they need to put sanctions on. They need to really take care of business here, and I would be angry and upset and frustrated. And if somebody came in to talk to me, I would be like, "Do you know the? Do you know what I have to eat? Do you know how hot it is here?" And you know this? I would go on and on. I think my tendency would be to complain, would be to look at my circumstances and to be frustrated. I think your pastor would be a lot more gracious than that. <laughs> I, think he, I think he might ask for an in and out burger. <laughs> but I think he would have some words of encouragement for his church, some words of love for his family. He doesn't know what's going to happen, how much longer he's going to be there. Okay? Now the truth is we face all sorts of problems and difficulties in our life on a daily, weekly basis. And the truth is we don't always handle those things the way that we should. I always find it ironic that somehow when we, we pass a magic threshold in the parking lot we come into church, we, we put on this happy face, right? If somebody cuts in front of you in line to get a donut, you don't know, say, hey, what are you doing? I was here first, right? But if you're at the DMV or you're on the freeway, all of a sudden... It's a whole different personality that comes out, right? As a missionary, we're real people too. I, I find that in myself, okay? This morning, we, I want to look at a passage that really has challenged me, and I hope will challenge you. And we're going to see how these difficulties, these problems that we face, and we face all sorts of things, whether they're financial problems, we didn't expect health problems, problems at work or at school or in relationships, And do we always handle those in the most biblical way? And I look at myself and I think, yeah, maybe if I was put in prison because I was thought to be somebody I wasn't, it was for the gospel, I might be willing to be more Christ-like about it. But what about the everyday situations? Am I living in a way, am I responding in a way that represents Christ? Christ. Turn with me in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1, starting in verse 12. Philippians chapter 1, verse 12. Paul is writing from his prison cell. Well, he's under house arrest after being wrongly accused. And he says this He says, Now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. Now, you read that on the surface and and you miss a lot. I think too often we're so familiar with passages in scripture that we just kind of glance over them and we miss the significance of what's happening here. But when he says his circumstances, Okay. ESV says, what has happened to me? What is he referring to? Okay? Well, just as I gave you that scenario of Jared being arrested, Paul, after his last missionary journey, went to Jerusalem. He hadn't done anything wrong. They thought he was breaking some laws, some judicial, some Jewish laws, and there was a mob that formed, and he was nearly killed, but then he was arrested by the Roman guards. He avoids an assassination plot and he's whisked away to Caesarea. There, he stands trial a couple times and they basically hold him in prison for two years because they're waiting for a bribe. And finally, he appeals to Caesar as his right as a Roman citizen, and so he's sent to Rome. On the way, what happens? shipwrecked as if things weren't bad enough he barely survives the shipwreck he gets onto the island of malta he's collecting some firewood then what happens he gets bit by a viper and the villagers are like this guy must have angered some gods first they try to kill him with the shipwreck and now the snake let's just watch and see how long it takes but he doesn't die and now for the last year he's been sitting under house arrest in rome He hasn't done anything wrong. He hasn't broken any laws. But he's possibly facing death. Now, if I was him, I would write a much different letter than Philippians. But not Paul. Paul glosses over all the bad things that's happened as simply his circumstances or the things that have happened to me. He doesn't dwell on them, he doesn't go into great detail about all the things that he's suffered. He simply says, it's as they're not even worth mentioning. They're so insignificant to something else I want to tell you. Why? Why does Paul have this perspective? This is going to be our main point this morning. He was able to see life's difficulties as gospel opportunities. He was able to look at the trials and the challenges that were facing him and say, I'm going to look beyond that and to see what God is doing in the situation and use it for the advancements of the gospel. And that is powerful when you consider the things that he went through and that's just a small list if you look at the whole list of things that he suffered in 2 Corinthians, beatings and imprisonments and all those things that Paul was able to have this perspective to see these difficulties in his life as an opportunity for the gospel. What's he referring to? Verse 13. My imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard. The very first thing he says, you would think I'm going to write this letter, right? Imagine, going back to our scenario at the beginning, you're waiting to get that email of how Jerry's doing in that prison cell, okay? And rather than talking about all the negative things, all the difficulties, all the trials that he might be experiencing, he he instead focuses on the positive, of how God is using what seems to be a tragedy, a persecution, and instead, it's this glorious opportunity for the gospel. And he says the first thing is that the whole Praetorian guard has heard the gospel. And again, we kind of glance over that Praetorian, we don't know what that means. Okay, These were 10,000 hand-picked, the elite guards in the Roman Empire. These people, some of them served directly under the emperor himself. Oftentimes they usually served for about 12 years and then they were put out into the public, but they were seen as the next influential people in the Roman government. They weren't your basic foot soldiers. These were the elite, influential people of the empire. The people the emperor trusted with his own life. They were known as kingmakers because a lot of the people that they supported would find their way to power. So they're extremely influential. But you imagine, if anybody was hard to reach with the gospel, it would have been these soldiers. right? The Roman Empire was very Against the gospel message, but the elite of the elite would have never had an opportunity to hear the gospel. And yet, here they are. Historians and theologians think that when he was under house arrest, it most likely meant that Paul was chained, maybe about a six foot chain, to a Roman soldier 24 hours a day. So, like from where Jerry is to me, that we are chained. 24 hours, and they would have a rotation of soldiers that would come through. Every four hours, a new soldier would come and stand watch. And Paul was allowed to conduct whatever business he wanted to. He could write letters, he could have visitors, but he couldn't leave his house arrest, and he couldn't leave his Roman guard. Now, what do you think Paul talked about during those many hours of that year as he's under house arrest? The thing that he was most passionate about, right? We know even when he was in Philippi, what happened? He cast out the demon. There was a mob that formed. He was put in prison with Silas. And what do they do while they're in prison? They're singing. They're praying. There's an earthquake that happens. The doors are opened. And the guard is about to kill himself because he's sure that all the prisoners have left. And what does Paul say? Don't. We're all here. And what does the guard say? Tell me, what must I do to be saved? He had heard Paul's message. He had seen Paul's response. And now this was the final breaking point. He said, I need to know this Jesus. Overnight, this guard was converted and his family. So imagine over a year of being chained to these elite Roman guards. And I imagine that word had spread that this was not just an average Christian, Right? This was the leader of this rebellious Christian sect that we'd heard so much about. And they heard that Paul does miracles. And they heard that he is this influential, the most influential person in the Christian movement. And when they come on duty the first time, they see this frail, old man who's not, in his own writings filled with knowledge as they would expect from some of their Greek philosophers. He is not eloquent of speech. He is not some great powerful general that they would expect leading a rebellious group, but this quiet, peaceful, joyful old man who passionately believes in his faith. And day after day they watch And they know he's wrongly accused, that he's done nothing wrong. And they know that he's possibly facing death, and yet they see this peace and this joy in Paul that they can't explain, they can't understand. And you wonder how many of them became Christians because of his influence. Because God sovereignly ordained that he would be arrested, shipwrecked, brought to Rome for that very opportunity to influence these people for the kingdom. The passage not only says, not only the whole Praetorian guard, but it says, and everyone else. I don't even know what that means. That's such a vague, all the other political leaders throughout the whole city, that his testimony is just spreading through the capital of the Roman Empire because of his imprisonment. That is powerful. That is a great opportunity that he could not have dreamed of when he had wanted to come and visit Rome. But that's not it. He says, that's not the only reason I'm excited about my imprisonment, that I'm taking advantage of this opportunity that God has ordained. Verse 14 Most of the brethren, trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment, have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. So not only have the Roman guards heard, but the Roman believers in the city are finally saying, if Paul can be that bold in prison, what must I do? How should I live? How should I be changed? You say, well, why were they afraid? Well, here they are just a few years prior. I think it was actually 10 years before every Jew, including Christian, had been kicked out of the city of Rome. And they'd only recently been allowed back into Rome to live because they were seen as anti-Roman. They were seen as atheistic because they didn't believe in any of the Roman gods. They didn't follow any of the Roman traditions and culture. And so they were kind of seen as outsiders. They they were despised. We know that they crucified tens of thousands of Christians And now this church, this fledgling church in Rome is in the heart of the Roman Empire under the view of the emperor himself. So it's no surprise that they are filled filled with fear and afraid to go out and do what God has called them to do. A few years prior to this, Paul had written the letter to the Romans, to the church in Rome. And he said, I am not ashamed for the gospel for it is the power of God And he didn't want them to be ashamed either, but they're living in fear. And you can't blame them because of how they treated the Christians. It would only be three years after this letter that they would be gathered up in masses and led into the Colosseum by the thousands to be burned alive, to be fed to animals, to watch them fight against gladiators and die for sport. That's The center here. So no wonder they needed this courage. But as they see Paul and everything that he's experienced, it says, if Paul can do that, what should I do? Can I just sit here and hide in my house and just pretend like nothing's going on while he's on the front lines? Reminds me, in Israel, the generals often fight in the front line with their own people. Now, you lose a lot of generals that way when you do that. But one of the things they found is that it motivates the people to follow somebody who leads from the front rather than leads from the back. And Paul is leading by example. And he's saying, follow me as we take the gospel forward into this empire. Don't sit back in fear. And that's exactly what they were doing I think back to my own life and some of the most encouraging things that I've seen in church and I've been shaped by have been watching people or hearing about people encounter difficult circumstances and still trust God. I remember the very first time I was just a new believer going to my first year in college and I heard the story about five missionary families who went to the jungles of Ecuador. And these five men wanted to reach the savage group of people, and they had gone out, and they were on the beach, and they were trying to create an opportunity to develop conversation with these people, and they were attacked. And every one of them was killed with spears. And they all left behind wives and children. And that story just gripped me that they, they would be willing, and they knew that was a possibility. Jim Elliott, Nate Spear, if you've seen End of the Spear, or if you've read in The Shadow of the Almighty, this powerful story of people who are willing to give up everything for the sake of the gospel. And I remember the, the quote that grabbed me that Jim Elliott in his book, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep in order to gain what he cannot lose. And as a new believer, I said, if they're willing to do that, what should I do? And even from the beginning, I said, I'll go wherever. I'll do whatever you want. Because I can't see any other way. I can't let other people go, well, I just sit back comfortably. And that was one of the things that motivated me to missions from a very early part in my Christian life. I also think about... The biographies I've read over there is I love to read biographies because they're so powerful in the way that they show you how people lived a life and were willing to sacrifice for the sake of the gospel. And I hope that we are moved as the Roman church was moved. As I'm sure, as the Philippians got this letter, as they were waiting anxiously. The whole reason, one of the main reasons Paul writes this letter is because they are sitting on pins and knees. What is happening to our beloved leader? Is he sick? Is he dying? Is he going to be killed? How is his health? What's going on? And, And they're expecting bad news, and Paul instead writes this beautiful, joyful letter. And it was nothing that they expected where he is rejoicing because the gospel is going forth despite his difficulties. Not only despite, but because of them. Because God sovereignly ordained that he would be there for such a time as that. That those guards would hear, that the city would take hold of it, and they would be willing to face the coming persecution that was only a few years off. He rejoices over one more thing: an advancement of the gospel. Verse. End of verse 14 there. They have far more courage to speak without fear. Verse 15: Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ, even from envy and strife, but some also from good will. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition. Rather than for, from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in this, I rejoice. Now, when things are going rough, when you're having that bad week or that bad month and everything just seems to be falling apart the one hope that you have is those closest to you will have your back, your family, your church. But even in the midst of everything that Paul is going through here, there are people that are using it as opportunity to to put him down. And we can only speculate, but some theologians and historians speculate that what was probably going on was that other pastors and leaders who had been jealous of Paul's position are seeing this and saying, see, If Paul was really an apostle, if he was really as good as everyone says he is, would he be going through all this? If you ask me, I think he's cursed. So, kind of like with Job's friends, where they said, Surely you must have done something wrong because you're experiencing all these difficulties. That they're using that same argument to say, Paul, you can't be as good as everyone says you are. Look at all the things that you are suffering. And so they're putting him down and rather than Paul use this would be a great opportunity to defend himself to push himself up to criticize them right that's usually our first instinct when somebody attacks us we want to attack back but instead he says I'm going to rejoice that at least they're preaching the gospel They may be putting me down in the process but that's okay because the gospel is being preached and honestly in Paul's perspective, that's all he cares about. And again, we see that Paul was able to look at these difficulties in his life and say, they're more than difficulties. These are gospel opportunities, and I'm going to make the most of it. I'm not going to waste it. I'm not going to have a self-centered focus that's only looking on how it involves me, but how it involves Christ and the betterment and the advancement of the gospel. Now this is a pretty amazing perspective on life that Paul has. And I think if we're honest, we fall short of that when we face the difficulties that we face. Those trials, those difficulties at work, with friendships, it's easy to not realize that they're more than just difficulties, but that they're actually gospel opportunities. They're a chance for us to make the most of it for the sake of Christ. How was Paul able to do this? He goes on, starting verse 19. For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and through the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ according to my earnest expectation and hope, that I will in no way be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness, Christ will now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. Paul says, you know what? Even if I die, the gospel will go forth. I'll be a martyr, and people will be even more emboldened to go and do the work that's being left behind. So whether I live or die, it doesn't matter. The gospel cannot be stopped. And this is the message he wants the Philippian church to know. And he he wants us to know. And then you get this powerful line. We're very familiar with this verse 21. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. And that, that could be our model right there. Our, if you had one statement that you strive to live by, that would be it. To live is Christ. That's all that matters to him. His imprisonments, his beatings, his shipwrecks, the snake bites, all the things don't matter. Because all he lives for is Christ, and that can't be taken from him. If he dies, it's better. He goes on in the next few verses, but, what I, but if I am to live on in this flesh, that will mean more labor. I'll continue to do the work that Christ has for me, and I do not know which to choose. I'm hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is far much better. I wonder how many Christians today say, I would much rather be in heaven than to be here. I think most often we're like, well, let me let me do this first. Let me finish college. Let me get a job. Let me have a family. Let me. When I get to retirement, then call me home. Okay? I don't think Paul had that perspective. I think Paul at any point was like, if it's today, your Lord, yes, I'm ready. I'm ready. I'd rather be with you right now. But if I stay, I know it's for a purpose. You have work for me to do. That." That is one of the most convicting mottos, verses, challenges that we can see in Scripture. For us to say, to live is Christ. And I think the American church, we have to be careful, all Christians, what do we fill that blank with? To live is, and put a blank there. To live is my job. To live is Recreation to live is to accumulate stuff, to live is to, and we filled in with all sorts of things. But Christ was the only thing that Paul filled in there. That was the only thing that mattered to him above everything else. It's no wonder that the church was motivated by his passion, by his life, by his example. And again, it wasn't just his words. I think it's, Romans is one of probably my favorite books in the Bible. And to imagine the church receiving that letter for the first time and reading this gospel-saturated letter. But it wasn't until they saw it lived out in Paul's life that they say, now I have the courage to do it. I understood it before, but now seeing it in your life, I say, yes, I'm ready to go. I'm ready to be bold. I'm ready to be courageous. I'm ready to face whatever comes for the sake of the gospel. That's how his life encouraged and challenged the people around him. And that's how we have to encourage and challenge each other. That we spur one another on through this attitude. And later Paul will say, "It's not that I've attained this, it's not that I've arrived, but I push on towards the goal." Right? My eyes are fixed I'm running the race. I'm not there yet. And I think for all of us, we say, okay, that's too much. You're a missionary. That's easy for you to say. That's your job. You have to do. No, this is a call for Christians, right? He's writing to a church. He's not writing to missionaries. This isn't one missionary writing to another missionary. This is a missionary writing to a church saying, come, follow me, wherever you are. Do the work that God has called you to do despite the difficulties. See it as a gospel opportunity. The book of Philippians is known as a letter of joy. Over 12 times, joy rejoices used throughout the letter. Yet it was written from house arrest after all these different circumstances. I think sometimes, as an American, I can get confused with the difference between happiness and joy. I like how, how one wise person put it. He said, a wise person once said that happiness depends on happenings. Joy depends on Jesus. Right? Some, we get happy when things go our way. We get that raise. We get that new car. We get this. We get that. We're happy, but it's fleeting. It doesn't last, but joy, joy that's rooted in Christ, <laughs> all the bad things that happen, and Paul still has joy because it can't be taken. Even if his life is taken, then he will realize the fullness of his joy. And those Roman guards chained to him saw that joy. They saw a peace and a joy that they had never seen before. And they began to understand the power of the gospel to transform lives. And I know it's easy to kind of, as we go through life, to forget that, to forget what joy is. Because. There's so many other things that kind of start to crowd it out and start to burden us and start to make us think, oh, I have this, if I I can only get rid of this problem or I can only fix this financial situation or if only this was better, then I would be joyful. That's not Paul's perspective. Paul says that is an opportunity. These difficulties are gospel opportunities. And he sees them with a joyful perspective. I was thinking of the, we've all seen the illustration of the glass being, is it half full or half empty? And if, it's, if you see it as half full, you're, you're optimistic. If you see it as half empty, you're a pessimist. I think Paul kind of broke the mold with that. I think in Paul's perspective, it was the glass falls on the ground, it's shattered, and there's nothing, and he sees it. Well, that's an opportunity. Everything was an opportunity for him. Okay, Tragedy strikes, you have no water now. And he says, Yes, but you have a gospel opportunity. There's something here that God is doing. God is sovereignly at work. Are you ready to be a part of it? Or are you just going to say, Well, it's not half full or half empty now, it's nothing? He saw the opportunity that was there. He chose joy, even when it didn't seem like joy was something that could be had. By way of application, how do we apply such a challenging example and life motto that Paul had? How can you see life's difficulties as gospel opportunities? I think our Christian witness is often strongest when things are hardest. I think the unbelievers around you are looking most closely at you when you're in the midst of a trial. John Piper, I love his writings. I'm not to that level where he could write a book in, that's titled Don't Waste Your Cancer. As he was in the midst of his cancer and he said, "This is not a tragedy. This is an opportunity for the gospel. And I'm not going to waste my cancer. I'm going to use it for the kingdom." That is powerful. That is, that is completely otherworldly to have that kind of perspective. John Bunyan, they wanted to silence him as a preacher, and he wouldn't, so they imprisoned him. And all the prisoners would come and hear him preach daily. And they thought, well, at least he's only pre- preaching to the prisoners. He doesn't have the same effect in England. But from that prison cell, he wrote what? What? Pilgrim's Progress. After the Bible, it's the most published, most read, most translated, over 200 languages. Almost 400 years ago, and he's still having a gospel opportunity that has exploded because he was faithful in the midst of his difficulty. It would have been very easy to sit there and go, God, why are you doing this to me? I've been faithful, I'm serving you. Why would you allow me to be in prison? But he didn't do that. Like Paul, he said, to live is Christ, to die is gain. I'm going to use this opportunity in any way that I can. And he wrote that powerful allegory that has changed and encouraged people throughout the last few hundred years. So, again, my question comes back to us Are you challenged by John Piper's life? by Bunyan's life, by Jim Elliott, Nate Spear, by Paul, who took their difficulties and said, God is doing something here. Now, some of our difficulties don't compare to what those people faced. But they're big in our lives, the challenges that we have. Will you use them this week? Right? It's for sure that we're going to have difficulties and challenges. Some might be as small as you're stuck in traffic and you're cut off by somebody. How do you respond? Okay. Somebody's gossiping about you at school or at work. How do you respond? Do you get frustrated and angry and immediately take a sinful perspective? Or do you say, this is an opportunity to let Christ shine. I'm convicted by this passage as much as you are. Because it's not easy. It doesn't come naturally to us. It's a choice of joy that we have to make to be intentional, to live mission-minded wherever we are, and to see those opportunities around us. Imagine if the church did this. Imagine if we did this even for a month. If every difficulty, if every trial, if every problem that came our way for the next month Rather than seeing it just as a difficulty as it is, we saw it as an opportunity for the gospel and we took advantage of it. How that would radically change our community, our work, our school, our family. But it's not easy. It doesn't just happen. It has to be intentional. It has to be a choice of joy. One pastor used the acronym of joy Jesus, others, yourself. Jesus is first, then others, then yourself. That's the path to joy. American culture says, put yourself first. You deserve it. Treat yourself. Think about yourself. Put yourself first. Paul says, put Jesus first. That's where joy is found. Will the church do that? We need... A movement, just as Jim Elliott's life and those other missionaries that died, they started the modern missions movement. Many thousands, hundreds of thousands of people as a result of that article that was published in Life Magazine. It brought up a whole generation of missionaries who said, I want to go because of what they were willing to sacrifice. And we still see the ripples of that today because through life and death, Christ is what mattered most. So again the question to ask yourself is will you take life's difficulties this week and see them for gospel opportunities. Let's pray. Father God this is a powerful challenge to us. We we so easily respond in the flesh when there's injustice, when we are wronged, when there's difficulties. We know that it's only through the power of the Holy Spirit that we can take the view that Paul took, that we can respond the way that Paul responded, that we could look for these opportunities for the gospel, that we could make the most of them. And we pray that this week, that you would help us to do that. Help us to live that Christ is the most meaningful thing in our lives. That we could also say to live as Christ and to die as gain. Please give us the opportunities and may we take advantage of them. We pray this in your name. Amen.